0: Hey there, this is Manny in the editor's chair. In the last 10 minutes or so of this episode, there are some topics that come up that we didn't have time to adequately address. I just wanted to note that our guests had to leave, but Dylan and I continued our conversation about those topics, and we will publish that discussion as an addendum episode to add more clarity. Thank you, and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Edwards Sleeper.
1: Welcome to A Bit More Complicated, the podcast where you can hear science-based discussions about important topics, issues, and problems in society and what we can
0: do to make them better. I'm Dylan Selterman at Johns Hopkins University. And I'm Manuel Galvan at UNC Chapel Hill. Today we'll be discussing social and medical transition for gender diverse people. I think it'd be helpful to frame the conversation around some basic knowledge about the history of transition. Trans people have always existed. But in Western society, they have essentially endured centuries of severe social pressure against many forms of gender nonconformity, certainly transitioning from one of the two general gender categories to the other. In fact, the first medical transition is often attributed to Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, who founded the Institute of Sexual Research in Berlin. The institute and all its research was burned and destroyed by the Nazis, who claimed that it represented degeneracy and a moral harm to the nation. If you've been following current events, you know that such rhetoric has not fully disappeared and is often at the heart of the modern attack on trans rights today. Despite this resurgence of anti-trans ideology, in recent years, for the first time in modern Western history, we have had access to gender-affirming care for trans people. This means people can socially transition to a different name, to a new set of pronouns, change their appearance. People can also get medical transition care as well, such as hormone blockers, cross-sex hormones and surgical interventions. However, such care is often only accessible by getting past many gatekeepers. For social transition, gatekeepers are the people in your lives friends, family, neighbors who might apply constant pressure against transition. For medical transition, gatekeepers are also friends and family, but also policymakers and medical providers. All of this still exists, but society has moved much further to a system where access to gender affirming care is possible, albeit not for everyone.
1: Yes, obviously we've made significant progress over time, and now we're at a point where there is much better access to medical care for trans individuals, and also a greater visibility and recognition of gender diversity. We also recognize some very complex questions about medical ethics inherent to gender-affirming medicine, with some unresolved questions about how to best care for individuals who experience gender dysphoria, especially in youth. Here to discuss this topic with us today is Dr. Laura Edwards-Leeper, who is a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in gender and professor emerita of the School of Graduate Psychology at Pacific University in Oregon. She works with gender diverse and transgender children, adolescents, and adults. Dr. Sleeper was a member of the American Psychological Association task force that developed practice guidelines for working with trans individuals. She was the past chair of the Child and Adolescent Committee for the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH, and was involved in the Standards of Care 8 revision. Dr. Edward Sleeper is credited as a pioneer in the field of youth gender medicine in the United States, having served as the founding psychologist at the first pediatric gender clinic in the country at Boston Children's Hospital, which helped bring medical transition options for minors starting in the mid 2000s. Dr. Edward Sleeper has written pieces for publications, including The Washington Post. In fact, the piece you wrote for them was co-authored by Dr. Erica Anderson, who is a recent guest of our show. So for listeners, definitely go back and check out the previous episode. Episode, which we published earlier in June, featuring Dr. Anderson. Dr. Edward Sleeper has also appeared on major news outlets such as Sixty Minutes and News Nation. Because of her expertise in this area, she is a much sought after source of insight and information. We're very grateful to have her with us today. Dr. Edwards Sleeper, welcome to our podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So anything else that our listeners should know about your background or your current work?
2: I I don't think so, other than the fact that at this point in time, the majority of my work is um, in private practice, doing you know clinical work with primarily youth, gender dysphoric youth, but I also see patients across
0: the lifespan. Um, so let's start the conversation off with a very broad bird's eye view question. So what causes gender dysphoria?
2: Well, that's actually that is a bird's eye view broad question. And I think the way I've come to, understand it over the years is that it's not always the same path that leads someone to experience gender dysphoria. So there are certainly people who describe a disconnect from their body or the gender that they were assigned at birth, that it seems very intrinsic and rooted in like who they are at a very deep level. And you know, oftentimes it's persisted for a long period of time and it's pretty severe and it's kind of then the person's like discomfort um, around that. And there may not be any other factors at all. It may just be kind of their general sense of, you know, not feeling like their body is right or their gender assignment is correct. In other cases, people de- develop dysphoria from circumstances that have happened in their life. So for example, a sexual trauma or abuse that may cause someone to feel really uncomfortable with their body and with their gender because it led to them, you know, or was a factor in them getting abused or hurt. That would be one example. Others You know, just experience things in life that make them uncomfortable living as the gender that they were assigned, you know, because of gender role expectations or that sort of thing that can lead them to sometimes experiencing gender dysphoria or significant mental health issues that people sometimes struggle to figure out the cause of can get complicated in terms of their gender identity at times. And so can lead people to feeling that part of their struggle is related to gender.
0: Yeah. And this is, I feel like this is such a big question. One follow-up is just, uh, is the diagnosis of gender dysphoria a requirement in order to engage with transition from a medical perspective?
2: I think from, in most medical clinics um, and from the ins- an insurance perspective in the United States, the diagnosis of gender dysphoria is typically required as as like the kind of primary issue or your factor that they take into account from my perspective, that's not sufficient in terms of making a decision about whether a person will likely benefit from medical intervention. It's not that hard to meet the diagnostic criteria for the DSM. And so that's kind of like the bare minimum from my perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I guess on the other hand, you know, there's also an argument being made that, perhaps people shouldn't have to even experience gender dysphoria in the most extreme way that would meet the diagnostic criteria in order to transition if that's what they feel would be best for them. So there are some providers in the field these days um, where they do not require the diagnosis of gender dysphoria in order to treat.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. The idea that it's it's you're right, or at least sorry, of course, you're right. You're the expert on this. But uh, something I've read, too, is that pr- practitioners and researchers seem to there seem to be people on both sides of this equation. Some people saying that it's not a, a low it's not a high enough bar to have gender dysphoria. And there's other people who are saying that that shouldn't even be a requirement in the first place. And that seems like a very fraught place for. The conversation to be that we can't even agree if this basic fundamental thing that we tend to think of as associated with transition is a necessity or not. Yeah, how do we? How do you make sense of that?
2: Well, I I don't know how to make sense of it. I think that's the problem. It's you know, it's it kind of blows my mind that we've gotten to a point where there are such extreme opinions about this, and as you might imagine, for parents facing this with their child. It's very confusing for them and very hard to navigate the system because depending on what provider they go to or which clinic they go to, they may hear a very different kind of approach or perspective on, you know, what is required in order to move forward with medical interventions or not, or what other options may exist for helping the young person feel better, Um, You know, it just it varies greatly. So parents are often taken off guard or very confused, you know, by, you know, just the different messages they get.
0: Yeah. One uh, final follow up is can cis people who have no interest in getting in transitioning or moving from one gender to the next, would you say they also experience gender dysphoria and. Is 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 something like getting a uh, breast augmentation or something like that or facial mm-hmm. surgery? Is that a form of cis people engaging with gender dysphoria or is that is that is there something wrong with framing it that way?
2: Mm. Oh, that's a that's a tough question. I, I mean, I suppose one could, you know, try to make the argument that it's no different if it's somehow tied to a gendered part of the body. Mm-hmm. But historically, anyway, the understanding of someone who identified as transgender and had severe gender dysphoria really encompassed those who felt this so deeply that, you know, many times they felt they couldn't go on living if they didn't, you know, have the interventions done medically that would alter their body in a way that made them feel more comfortable in their skin. Mm -hmm. And so when I think about it from that standpoint, that seems very different than, you know, like cosmetic surgery for someone who's just kind of sort of unhappy with with some aspect of their body, whether it's gendered or not. Um, But I think this is one of the um, topics that some providers are grappling with these days, as, you know, we are now faced with individuals who may not have severe dysphoria, but just simply want to alter parts of their body that, you know, we could consider to be gendered parts? And where does that fall? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think it's it's a, a question that we have not come to a, an answer on.
1: Gotcha. Right. So as I mentioned in the intro, you are credited as someone who helped formally establish this practice of youth transition as part of gender clinics in the U.S., and that's a tremendous achievement of modern science And that work entailed traveling to the Netherlands, learning about what they were doing there in terms of research and actual clinical procedures, what is now colloquially referred to as the Dutch protocol, and then incorporating that into services for children and adolescents here in America. So I'm hoping you can walk us through that a little bit. Like, what is that protocol? Is it tailored differently for people here in North America and also you know, what new evidence has emerged since the original studies with that uh, first cohort in Europe? And what have we learned sin- f- since then?
2: Well, uh, there has been a lot that has changed during that time, both in terms of, you know, continued research in the field, but also the population that we're treating has really changed pretty drastically. And in terms of the the process and the protocol, the Dutch you know, protocol that you referred to, when I was trained to understand that protocol and then tasked with bringing it back to United, the United States at Boston Children's Hospital in 2007, I felt very strongly that we needed to align our process as closely as possible with that protocol, because that really was the only empirically supported treatment Pro- protocol out there at that time for minors and so you know the dutch were were following people longitudinally and at that point we're starting to see very positive outcomes with you know quality of life and mental health and all of it but you know the the critical piece to their protocol is the mental health component the the both therapy and family involvement parent involvement as well as a very thorough psychological assessment to ensure that the young person will likely be a good candidate for moving forward with medical intervention. And so that's what I I tried to create in the United States. And we did have to make adjustments to their process because of differences in the healthcare system and the size of the clinic and the number of mental health people at Boston versus, you know, in the Dutch clinic where they had... 20 or more at the time, I think now they have over 40, you know, and it was just me and in Boston. So I really had to rely on providers in the community to do some component of the uh, like kind of assessment slash therapy process. But I did create a more structured assessment process that is not all that different than other kinds of psychological assessments that I was trained to do um, with a clinical interview with the child and with the parents and the use of a battery of measures, psychosocial measures, as well as gender measures that included a feedback session and a report at the end of the whole process. So I created something that felt familiar to me and that would kind of cross all the T's and dot all the I's, you know, to make sure everything was in line as close as possible. And so that is what I have continued to offer and what I have trained others in the mental health field to do. And I I do think it's a a way of being thorough. However As the years have gone by, the numbers of youth that have come forward seeking medical interventions interventions has exploded exponentially. And so that has created a problem with being able to offer such a thorough process for every youth that comes in the door. And so that's one reason I think that Things have shifted in the field in terms of how, you know, how clinics are approaching the care, which in my mind is really unfortunate because I do feel like the gold standard is to have, you know, both a mental health provider who can offer supportive therapy and exploration and all of those kinds of preliminary pieces. But then in addition to that, you know, a more kind of structured formal assessment process that, you know, can pick up on pieces that may not be captured in the therapy process. So these days it it looks very different in many places where in the United States, um, I'll speak to specifically, but, you know, most clinics do not have more than one, maybe two mental health providers. Some don't have any mental health providers. um, And most of them, you know, are not able to offer these assessments in house because, They can't possibly do that given the number of providers they have. Um, So the hospitals, unfortunately, have not allocated resources to the clinics in a way that has allowed them to really closely follow the standards of care. Um, And so that's left the clinics with no choice but to rely on providers in the community to do these assessments. And then you basically write some sort of letter or something indicating whether they feel that the young person should go forward with the medical intervention. And that could be okay, except that the assessments that are done in the community by mental health providers vary greatly from one person to the next <laughs> in terms of what that assessment looks like and what's included in the assessment. There's There are multiple layers to this that have kind of created the problems I think that we're seeing now.
1: So you mentioned the exploding numbers of young people presenting at gender clinics. I want to follow up on that. But also, I my understanding is that they're also qualitatively different now in terms of the type of people who are presenting. And uh, I, I'd like to explore that a bit more it seems like based on what i've been reading there's more people with without lifelong gender dysphoria but something that's you know maybe has started in adolescence and perhaps following other Life things, maybe major depression, suicidality, eating disorders, et cetera. So I'm I'm hoping you can help us unpack that. How how are the young people presenting at clinics today, similar or different from the ones originally the the, the population of interest from the Dutch research?
2: Thank you for bringing that up because that is the other big factor I would say that has um, made things so much more difficult these days. Um, yes, the population. Is very different by and large. We still see the 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 patients that we were seeing back t- two decades ago. You know, the ones who had childhood dysphoria where it persisted through their entire early childhood years into their you know adolescent years. Who often, if they didn't have the option of puberty blocking medication, would flip out at the idea of going into their biologically determined puberty. Um, So those kids still do exist, but that's not the majority of the ones that I'm seeing. And I think most of my colleagues are seeing um, these days. Most of them are coming in already in their adolescent years. Many of them do not have any history of gender dysphoria in childhood. And as you said, a lot of them have significant mental health issues that started prior to any question of gender, and oftentimes the mental health issues hadn't been appropriately addressed. And so then the gender piece just kind of got added to the mix for some reason, and then it becomes very complicated to tease apart, you know, is the gender distress kind of a separate piece that just needs to be treated independently, or is it somehow tied to these mental health issues and maybe addressing the mental health issues will resolve the gender dysphoria. So, yes, it's very it's a very different population. And in fact, the the longitudinal research done by the Dutch and their protocol that they have that they used early on, you know, and still use required that the young person have childhood dysphoria at least in their the first subset of young people who we've been they've been following over the years and so they did not include any of these like later onset cases in that data set <laughs> so we really don't have longitudinal data on this particular subset, like true longitudinal data that some, some clinics have collected data six months or you know, maybe up to two years post starting medical intervention, but nothing that's really followed these young people up to this point, you know, that years down the road. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a very different group.
0: I'm glad you brought up the data. I'm, I'm curious about that. And I wanted to just see what we know about that because I definitely hear the I hear what you're saying about the population changing, and I'm sure from a clinician standpoint, you're seeing it in the clinic. But obviously the gold standard for understanding if the population has changed over time is is like a nice peer reviewed study across a large sample of different clinics that are representative of the population as a whole i'm curious if, if is there no is there studies like that that show that the population today is much different than the population 20 years ago in terms of how long they've persisted in in having gender dysphoria or uh as you were saying that having these like other issues going on is that kind of documented in a peer reviewed journal, or is that more just like your experience as a mm-hmm. clinician?
2: That I'm going to, I I believe, I mean, that's definitely my experience as a clinician. I'm trying to think if anyone has really looked at that. Not that I know of off the top of my head, you know, I, I will add that, you know, even back when I first started doing this work, we did have, you know, a sizable subset, I think around 50%, actually we, we reported in a paper of young people, who didn't have severe dysphoria in childhood, but were coming in in their adolescent years. But the difference was back then that typically those young people, they themselves did recall experiencing some gender dysphoria, but when they tried to bring it up to their parents, it was kind of shut down. And, you know, it was during a time when there was nothing in the news about trans people, like no one was talking about it. And so you know, parents just were not as willing to explore it or think about it. And so from my perspective, they really, they probably were childhood onset cases back, you know, that, that group, they just weren't allowed to talk about it. Like they weren't, you know, fast forward ahead 10 years, their parents may have said, okay, let's socially transition you, (laughs) you know, but that just wasn't happening back then. So You know, it's a little hard to compare all of these different ways that it develops for different kids. Mm -hmm. But I will say from at least from my perspective, back in the 2007 to 2000, I don't know, whatever, you know, several year range, it just wasn't that common for me to see young people who had such severe mental health issues in combination with the gender. And if they did have depression or anxiety, it was very clearly tied to the social stigma around being trans, you know, about the the parents not really understanding about the school not being supportive, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we would see marked improvement when we intervene with the gender piece. And so it felt very clear that, OK, this the mental health issues are really secondary to the gender dysphoria. Right these days that's just, it's, it doesn't go that way. Like a lot of times the mental health doesn't improve after they get the mm-hmm. the medical treatment for the gender dysphoria and, you know, and the schools and the parents are supportive. So it's not as if the mental health issues are because of stigma or, you know, it's, it really, and, and the kids often will say themselves, you know, my depression isn't just because of my gender. Like they'll, they had, know that there's more going on, or my anxiety is way beyond just like gender stuff. But for some reason, as a field, we haven't taken a step back to try to really understand, like, well, maybe we need to approach this a little differently, you know, given the order that things are kind of presenting.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. I, I, yeah, I'm still, I would love to see, uh, or I'm excited, I guess, for the next 10 years of research that is going to kind of explain and and explicate some of the things that are happening right now and how it's going to improve uh, or change the way we treat trans youth going forward. So, I am excited about that. I was,
2: I hope that, yeah. that that research happens. I was just going <laughs> to interject because one of the one of the big problems, you know, and I know that the two of you value research, one of the problems that I see as, you know, a trained researcher myself, is that I I don't know that there's really a lot happening in the way of longitudinal research in the U.S., partly because the pediatric clinics are so separated from the adult clinics. And so what happens is the when the young person kind of graduates from the pediatric care, they get transferred to adult care. But. I'm not really aware of clinics that are following people over time, mm-hmm. which kind of seems crazy to me that that's not happening in such an area that's so political and polarized and we desperately need research. And hopefully I'm wrong. And hopefully there are places that are following, planning to follow these kids You know, even if they get lost to follow up, they're gonna figure out like, well, did you desist or did you like, you know, what happened? Like, why? You know, for those cases. But then also just how people do long term, particularly with this later onset, you know, adolescent group. You know, it's like that's what we really need to understand better. Is like, what, how do those young people fare after starting medical interventions?
0: One one uh, follow up I wanted to ask about, and this is it's kind of in the zeitgeist, and there's this uh, conversation about treatment that is basically centered around the likelihood of suicide and given treatment or not given treatment. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this. So there's, I think there's like a good faith version of this. And then there's kind of a not, not as good version of this argument. I think the not as good version of the argument is kind of like you're like you're going to, you're going to kill kids if you put up any barrier or uh, if you, if you make it at all harder for kids to transition or get access to surgery or whatever, um, that's kind of a version that I'm curious what you think about that. I, I don't really like the framing personally, but I think there's a more defensible version, which is just to say that, like, it seems that our treatments for uh, uh, gender dysphoria and and gender affirming care. Are helpful at mitigating the risk of suicide, which I think is just framed a bit differently and seems to match the evidence mm-hmm. that I'm aware of. I'm curious what you make of of the risk of suicide and its relationship to getting gender affirming care.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, as a child, you know, provider. <laughs> um, or any healthcare provider, you know, really suicide is something to take very, very seriously. And working with a lot of teenagers, you know, unfortunately right now there is a mental health crisis among our youth. And so there are a lot of young people who are suicidal and it's, it should always be taken very seriously. I absolutely believe that. And I do, know that there are some young people whose dysphoria is so severe and, you know, perhaps they've had to wait years and years to convince their parents that this is what they really need. And they just living in the wrong body any longer just feels completely unbearable to them. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I don't doubt that for a second, you know, and I've had those clients and I've had friends and colleagues, you know, also who I think have experienced that degree of distress. Mm -hmm. But I think the reality is that, first of all, even in the standards of care, it's very clear that there needs to be a degree of psychiatric stability before starting any kind of hormone treatment or doing any kind of surgeries purely from the standpoint of ensuring that we're getting informed consent, like true informed consent for the person. And if someone is emotionally dysregulated to the point that they're suicidal or they're self-harming, can they really give informed consent? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, it makes me a little bit nervous. And, you know, there have been a handful of cases I've worked with where myself and the team that I was involved in decided to move forward with medical intervention because we were so concerned about the kids suicidality in that moment and in every single one of those cases the kid ended up making an attempt anyway so it didn't like it didn't alter like their mental health crisis. So I think there is this tendency to get pulled into thinking that, okay, this is going to like fix it if we act in this moment and act quickly. I think that's the, that's the danger is feeling that we need to act quickly because of this. I think probably the suicidality concerns increase for an individual if they feel like there's no hope ever in the future that I'm going to get this intervention that I desperately need. But if it can be framed, like Yes, we will get you the intervention you need. We just want to do it in the safest way possible and ensure that you are stable and able to really think about the risks and the benefits of this and have all the supports in place so that when you start an hormone intervention, you know, that causes changes to mood for many people, that you're in the best possible place to benefit from that. I think the issue is so much more complex than it's often made out to be, which you know, I've had so many parents tell me that they've, they're they told by their kids, mental health provider, medical provider, school counselor. I mean, you name it, that if they don't get on board immediately and get the kid started on hormones, then the kid is going to commit suicide. And would you rather have a dead daughter or a, a live son? You know, that whole thing. Right. I mean, I hear it all the time. And I think that that's really not helpful to to parents and to families who are trying so hard to to be thoughtful and careful and, and not put up barriers, but just ensure the safety of their child.
0: Yeah, I think I agree. It's the jumping from a statistic that exists for on average, it's like an average statistic that's applied to an individual. And you just don't, you don't really know if what the effect of the treatment will be for any given individual. You just know that on average, like people benefit from this treatment if they have gender dysphoria. And so I think that jump is, is one that I agree with you is, is not not well-framed sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it, it occurs to me, there also may be
1: an issue of reverse causalities to some extent with regards to some of these findings from cross-sectional research where they ask people, did you receive the treatment? Yes or no. And then suicidality. But if my understanding is correct, like you said, sometimes care may be delayed until there is psychiatric stability so it could be that rather than the deliverance of care being the causal factor that reduces suicidality it could be that suicidality or some other type of psychiatric instability was what promoted the you know professionals in this space to say well let's let's slow down a bit and so you have that kind of alternative explanation for at least some of the cross-sectional studies. Do, what, what do you what do you think about that? Idea?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think there are so many like methodological issues with these studies that have shown the correlation. Um, that if you really look closely, you know there are so many confounding variable um, variables potentially and other explanations that to just jump to the conclusion that it's like medical intervention quickly equals decreased suicidality, you know, it's just, if you have any background in research, you can quickly see that you just can't draw that conclusion necessarily. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, I think that that absolutely, the way you described it is one, is one thing that could be playing a role. Yeah. I mean, it, I think again, the other piece that's important that I don't know that there's research on this, but clinically, a lot of us talk about how when young people, or even it doesn't have to be young people, like anyone who's like been wanting medical intervention finally gets it, especially if they felt like they had to wait some time. There is kind of a honeymoon period often where initially, even for the first year, they may feel really good. And and sometimes parents will say, you know, I think that they feel good because they finally got what they've been wanting. <laughs> you know, this is what they've been pushing for and fighting for, and they finally got it. So they feel good. And so that I'm sure does decrease like suicidality and improves mood and mental health for a period of time but if the if the gender issue wasn't the underlying problem or the only issue then the mental health pe- like problems are going to resurface eventually which is often then what happens
1: yeah that that makes sense and so you know what what you've described in terms of the 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 dutch practices and the way in which that's been applied here in north america it seems like we have these Essentially, mental health guardrails in place to, you know, to increase our confidence that individuals will benefit from transitioning. But with those procedures and assessments in place, it does mean that some individuals may not receive the treatments that they want or may not receive them right away, even if they feel like they do have a stable trans identity. So I guess my question is, uh, do you still do you still believe that is consistent with the affirmative care model? Because I, I hear the term affirmative care model used in the context that you're describing, but then also used in a different context where someone comes into a clinic and right away they're given whatever treatments they want,
2: yeah. So the whole language around all of this has been really frustrating. It's and, spe- and specifically with the uh, affirmative language as well as the exploratory language that has now recently come about. Because I mean, the re- the reality is when we started using the term affirm, it really was intended to mean kind of the, the opposite of conversion therapy. Like, you know, we wanted to do something that was going to help the person be who they truly felt they were and not force them in a direction you know not force them to only be their assigned gender or whatever so and the the process of like the affirmative model if we want to call it that in the early days always in, assumed that there would be exploration there would be therapy there would be gender exploration there would be you know in uh, making sure that the young person had realistic expectations for what the medical interventions were going to do. And just to be very, very cautious and, and thorough. So the, the reality that affirm, like the affirming process um, has become to be now known as kind of blindly affirming. Well, we're, where you know maybe there's no mental health involvement and there's no assessment and and it's really very medical like it's really it's completely tied to the medical treatment mm-hmm. um when many people talk about it you know it's frustrating to to me having like watched the field evolve and knowing how we intended it to begin with and so it's tricky i mean i still call myself an affirming provider but i've i've started to include the word exploratory in that just because i think that both are, are critical. There is now an exploratory organization, like a gen- therapy, a gender exploratory therapy or a therapy, I forget what it's called <laughs> exactly. But, and, you know, that, that group does focus on gender exploration, but they also don't tip as far as I understand, don't feel that medical intervention is appropriate for any minor. And so I don't align with that either. You mm-hmm. know, that's not where I'm coming from. So, so I've just decided I'm going to use both of the terms <laughs> together <laughs> to describe until I come up with a better word for what what it is that I feel like I'm doing that's kind of like taking both into consideration.
1: So when you have these major medical organizations in countries like the United States saying that they are behind the affirmative care model, what do they mean by that?
2: <sighs> that's a really great question. <laughs> 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 I mean, I think that if you asked Any of them, you know, they would probably never say that the mental health component wasn't important, but I'm not sure if they, you know, if they necessarily like truly value and understand how important it is. Like, from my perspective, it is the most important piece of the entire thing, which is what the Dutch modeled you I know mean, oh you know that I mean their process was all about the mental health assessment and therapy and at the sort of like the last part was possibly medical intervention for some like group of the of the kids coming in and that is just not the way it's approached in the United States it's very much a medical focus you know and for all kinds of reasons that we can speculate about you know it's it, the things move more quickly here. Like people, you know, want to move things along faster and the thought of having to to wait. And I'm not talking necessarily just about patients, but I think, you know, the medical system, it do, we don't want long wait lists and we want patient satisfaction and um, all of that. And so I think there's a lot of pressures on the providers and the clinics that are trying to provide good service to follow the hospital's expectations.
0: Thanks. Yeah, I feel so. It feels to me and please correct me if if you feel like you don't agree that this is where the conversation is at. But I feel like a big part of the disagreement between maybe the the two groups of people who are all affirming in some sense that they want to like help people. They don't want to they don't want to push people into like uh, conversion therapy. They just want to let people see, explore, however you want to frame that. I think everybody is on that same page. It's just a question of like. How do we do that? And I think one of the big uh, debates here implicitly is like about informed consent, bodily autonomy, and paternalism, and and different ways that people have uh, framed the issue around those those things. And so, like, just for the audience, I- informed consent just is basically the model that most of us engage with the healthcare system with. Often, you come into the doctor's office, you say, "Hey, doc, I have this issue." They run a test or so. But at the end of the day, they tell you here are the potential risks for the thing that we're going to do. Here are the potential benefits. You get to make the decision as as the the patient. And maybe you'll run into some stuff with the insurance, like what they'll cover or whatever. But if you're just like paying out of pocket for procedures, generally you can just kind of get something. Like if you want to get a breast and impl- breast implants, you can just get them. They'll tell you the risks. They'll tell you the benefits, and then you can engage with it. And that's just like informed consent. It's also a form of bodily autonomy, right? Like I have a body. I can do what I will with the body. I can engage with the medical system and do what I want with it. And then there's this older view of how medicine has historically worked where we kind of have this paternalistic view where the doctor knows more than you and they're going to make decisions for you about your body and what happens with you. Um, And we've kind of moved over the years away from that system of more paternalistic Mm -hmm. medicine. And so I think a lot of people frame all of this in those terms, right? Like, especially if you compare trans people to cis people, right? Because cis people can kind of just, there's a guy out there who has deformed his face so he looks like a lizard like you've probably seen this person like he has like horns and he has like mm-hmm. all sorts of paint like tattooed his whole face to look green and that guy just can get what he wants done to his body but a trans person who mm-hmm. wants to like have themselves just look like the other sex let's say like being uh, being born a, a male and they want to transition into having a, a gender presentation that is female then then we have all of these guardrails and we have these these issues and, and we have a whole conversation around, like, should we let them basically? And some people say that that's an imposition on trans bodily autonomy where we don't do that mm-hmm. with cis people. And I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah.
1: Are we having that conversation with adults or with kids, though? Because I imagine for adults, we, we, we have pretty much the informed consent model for, like you said, you know, pretty, pretty much all the treatments that people want. But I no nobody, nobody's saying that a 16 year old should get the lizard (laughs) surgery, right? Like that's that's, right. So so
0: let's deal with adults and kids kind of trying to do both at the same time. I think in the terms of adults, there are people who say even an adult. Like trans person needs to go through therapy, needs to engage with a process that's more drawn out than simply getting access to treatment. I think like that is a hundred percent a thing that people advocate for. And in terms of kids, like right now, if you want to get a tattoo on your face as a 16-year-old, you can. All you have to do is get your parents in the room and they agree to do it. The same thing with breast implants. Like you can get breast implants as a 16-year-old girl. Your parents just have to sign off on it, and that's the only barrier there is. And so we do have a bodily autonomy thing. It's just through the permission of the parent for for kids. But we're kind of not – that's not the thing that we're talking about now because we're saying like, sure, you need the parents to agree, but also you need to go through this long process of us verifying that you are an acceptable candidate for these treatments. And so – yeah, I, I really want your reaction to this, Dr. Mm-hmm. Dr. Yeah,
2: See, yeah. I have a lot of reactions to it. I mean, I do think that that part of it is absolutely there's a difference between the adult care and the the adolescent or child care. And that's one of my biggest points I try to make to people that I as a child, adolescent psychologist who knows a lot about development across the lifespan, including the emerging adult slash older adolescent years, the eighteen to twenty five years of age, <laughs> these are all very distinct developmental periods that have been studied in our field, psychology, for you know a long time. Just each has their own like like body of research, and and that's very helpful as we're talking about these things. You know, in the in terms of the trans field with adults, we absolutely have moved away from the more gatekeeping process that we had in the past. It's, it's very much informed consent. Like I actually don't know of any adult clinics that, you know, require all of those additional steps that you described. Mm -hmm. You know, what's kind of interesting is if you think about the role of psychologists in the medical field for other kinds of medical necessi- medically necessary treatments or, yeah, I mean, in some cases, I guess they're medically necessary, like an organ transplant or bariatric surgery. I mean, there is informed consent and there is autonomy, but there's also a recognition that you Know these are pretty significant, right? You know, surgeries, and so they do have a psychologist typically do an assessment prior to make sure the person's ready for it, they understand they truly can give informed consent, that they can understand all the implications. So, you know, I think you know, for adults, you know, m- one could maybe argue that maybe this is similar, like maybe it would be wise just, just to be cautious in that way. I myself do not tend to practice that way with adults, I do fall more on the the end of, you know, you're an adult, you're in, you know, you're autonomous, you should be able to make these decisions for yourself. I think it gets tricky with the young adults, particularly the ones that have complicating factors such as significant mental health issues, neurodivergent um, kinds of complications. Even the standards of care are clear that, you know, with some young adults, we do need to approach it more like we would with an adult, adoles- younger adolescent, because of some of these complicating factors. Um, So, so there, there is that piece, but if we move now to the 18, you know, the under 18 year olds, I feel very strongly that we need to approach it differently. And, you know, because that stage of development is, is just so complicated for so many reasons. And um, when we do any kind of assessment for medical or mental health treatment with an adolescent, especially if it's going to involve any kind of medical intervention, like even for ADHD, Mm -hmm. you know, as a psychologist, like I'm supposed to get information from the parents and the teachers as well as the kid, you know, I can't just talk to the kid and get, you know, and then send them to the psychiatrist for stimulants. You know, I think it's no different than any other assessment process that we would do in you know, with minors who may not always know all of the important things to share or, you know, hearing a parent perspective just gives additional information that can really guide like our recommended treatments. The way I approach the assessment process is very collaborative. So, you know, even with minors, you know, I tell them straight off at the beginning First of all, you know, parents and kid, I am not going to tell you at the end of this, whether you're trans or not, like that is not my job. I cannot do that. (laughs) We do not have a a brain scan or a blood test that can tell us that. So if that's what you're looking for, don't waste your time and money with me. (laughs) I'm not going to give you that. Second thing I'm not going to do is give you a red light or a green light for going forward with medical intervention. I am not in, I'm not comfortable being a gatekeeper. I see my job as being collaborative and my goal is to provide you with as much information as possible about your individual self or your child so that you can make the best decision going forward. That is my goal. Mm-hmm. And so you can agree with it or disagree with it and at, you know you can share my report with their medical team or not. <laughs> at the end of the day, most clinics right now, you know, a lot of places in the United States don't require a big assessment. Mm-hmm. So you can probably just go in and tell them what you want to tell them. And if you want to start medical intervention, they will probably start you Right. in some places. Minors as young as 14 don't even need parent consent to to start medical interventions for gender affirming care. So th- they don't really at this point need me, even though the standards of care do say that this kind of process should happen. Gotcha. And so, you know, I just don't approach it in that gatekeeping kind of way. And to me, it feels like if as a parent myself, this is what I would do. you know. This is what I would want if I were a parent dealing with this. And so I feel like it's only fair to offer that same kind of service to parents who are seeking the best treatment for their kids.
1: Thanks for helping us Mm -hmm. think through all of that stuff. I have a very quick side question for you about that as we're talking about the distinction between young people and adults. Putting aside the legal distinction between those who are over 18 and and under 18, just in terms of developmental psychology, like, what do you think is the real age of maturity for people? Sometimes I hear these, I I see these headlines, like people aren't really adults until Mm -hmm. their late twenties or even their Mm thirties. So in, in thinking about this specific topic that we're talking about, or just in general, like, what do you think about that?
2: You know, I, I think it varies so greatly from person to person i mean i i absolutely have had 15 year old clients who were so mature and so thoughtful so insightful and introspective and and really able to think through all of the factors that go into these decisions including fertility you know which is a really hard one for young people <laughs> Um, and so that those kids do exist and, you know, that makes my job a lot easier, you know, when it's a young person and that's also why I'm not in favor of the bans for minors receiving medical care, because I don't want to take that care away from Mm -hmm. those who are, you know, it's so clear that it's going to benefit them and they're mature enough to make the decision. On the other hand, you know, I've had, you know, 21, 22, 23 year olds who, are still struggling. You know, they're still they're not like moving into adulthood. They're not meeting all of the the milestones that we would hope, you know, being able to drive, like living away outside of you know, moving away from home, getting through college or you know, keeping a job. I mean, you know, really struggling to kind of make that developmental leap and also just not as insightful or stable from a mental health perspective. So you know i i I see a pretty big range, and it's it's not always you know it's not based on chronological age. You know, I think by and large, definitely, like the older a person gets, on average, you know, I feel more and more comfortable as someone gets older and making these decisions. You know, I feel a lot more comfortable in general with a seventeen year old starting <laughs> hormones than I do with a thirteen year old. You know, every case is different, and I, and it does go back to why you know, I think an individualized approach to this care is so, so critical. And in my mind, the only way we can offer individual, individualized care truly is if we do a thorough assessment of each kid Mm -hmm. and really understand all of the factors that are going on for that individual child, and then make suggestions and, you know, bring up concerns for that particular child Um, individually is I think the, and unfortunately I think that's, you know, at this point in time, that's the only way I know how to do it. And I recognize that that does not solve the waitlist problem, the access issue. It doesn't, you know, and I'm, I don't have a, a perfect answer for how to solve that because I think there are so many complicating pieces to that too like why you know how do we get enough how do we get enough people trained to offer these thorough assessments and and how do we convince hospitals to put money into these clinics and how do we convince the medical providers to value the mental health piece you know more than some of them do you know there's so many barriers i think to like really moving this in a direction that i think we need to be moving it in
0: yeah and and like you kind of pointed out there's now a problem kind of coming from the other side where there are bands that are coming in and trans people are kind of being used as this enemy from the political right wing to kind of target their messaging around. And that's a whole other problem kind of in the other direction now. So I think that that context also makes this whole conversation way more fraught and, and difficult to navigate because something I keep coming back to is like, there's a huge amount of stigma that's increasing now. I, I, I just saw a poll uh, today that was showing that support for transitioning to the opposite gender had been higher in the past than it is now in the UK. And in the UK, people are starting to oppose transition. Um, more now than they had 20 years ago or or 10 years ago or something, because there's just Mm -hmm. been a concerted effort to stigmatize this group more. And so there's the current level of stigma. There's costs. There's like medical red tape. There's a lot of effort that goes into this There's a whole right wing campaign against trans ideology, quote unquote. I keep wondering, like, is the problem in the current moment really false positives in affirmative care? Like, is that the is that Mm -hmm. are we Are we really just giving too much healthcare for people? It seems like we're kind of having the other problem. So uh, Mm. it's interesting, like the kind of advocacy you're engaged in, given that context. And I'm curious how you think about your role in the conversation, given what's happening on, on the political right wing.
2: Yeah, well, you know, let me back up for a minute and just say that it's so interesting to hear you describe where you think, like why you think there's been this increase in people kind of opposed to trans care in the UK, you know, and, and maybe other places too, being sort of this conservative agenda. I'm not doubting that that's playing a role in it. <laughs> I mean, I would put money on it. that That's a part of it. But I, I honestly think that the other huge piece that often is, is not captured by the media is the number of parents, liberal parents, mind you, <laughs> that are kind of waking up and appalled to see what is going on when they have a child who's coming out as trans because so many kids are identifying as trans these days. And so, you know, this is happening across the political spectrum like, and most of the parents I talk to are actually, you know, you know, the most liberal of the liberal, you know, they're like, they live on the West coast. They, you know, vote for Bernie Sanders in the past, you know, I mean, these are the most liberal people and, they are starting to speak up and they're smart. They're smart and resourceful. You know, these are doctors and lawyers and, you know, whoever, engineers, I mean, they are doing the research and they are recognizing that, okay, wait a minute, like, this is getting really complicated. Like, why are we seeing such a huge increase in these kids? Like, why is half of my kid's class identifying as trans? And why, when I go to the, my local gender clinic, am I, do I feel like I'm, as one parent put it, going to a timeshare pitch, you know, like it's its not it being presented in a way that they're, you know, where we can offer a more comprehensive approach or there's these other ways we can handle the dysphoria. It's just like medical, medical, medical. So my sense is that in addition to the conservative agenda, I think that there are, you know, it's it's kind of shocking really, but an, like more and more people who are kind of, in the middle left-leaning or even more extreme left-leaning who are recognizing that there's a problem. And if their child is impacted by this, they're going to start being vocal about it. Um, So, but going back to your question of like, where do I fall? So it's, it's a very hard place to be. And it drives me crazy that this has become so political and that children, trans and gender distressed cisgender kids (laughs) are being used as political pawns on both sides to, further these agendas that, you know, is totally a p- anti-child welfare. I mean, this is a, from my perspective, this is a child healthcare welfare issue this is not really just a safe trans children issue like we uh, i feel like we need to be protecting all kids like there are yes the trans kids who do need to transition and they do need the medical interventions and certainly trans adults we should not be taking away care from them by any means but we also have a lot of confused cisgender kids or cisgender gay kids
0: i think you articulated well some of the fears that people that aren't just on the political right, like you said, are kind of distributed across the political spectrum, although maybe concentrated on the political right and then smaller numbers on the political left. But again, it really depends on what country you're in. I think in the UK is a particular case where the kind of thing that I'm talking about is distributed across the political left and right. Mm-hmm. Just to be clear, the the polling I was referring to was from the British Social Attitude Survey from 2016 to 2022. Um, and so they in in 2016, support was at 60% for the question, do you support allowing people to change legal sex? And now it's at 30% for support. And oppose was at uh, around 25% in 2016. And now it's about 40% oppose. And so I think one of the things you articulated is there is the perception about you know how bad the clinics are or the how widespread being trans is. But I think if you look at the polling data for, you know, asking people how what what uh, if they're trans or or gay, they're still really, really small numbers. I mean, the perception that half your class is is trans is just not bearing out in any of the peer reviewed data that we have. It is Mm -hmm. a perception that people have, but it's incorrect. And I think like the the incorrect, the incorrect perceptions that people have seem to me to come from kind of a media environment that is feeding a set of false beliefs about uh, trans people. And that is leading us to a situation where people want to change policy, not because of facts, but because of perceptions that don't match the facts that we know about these groups of people. Uh, Another thing that people perceive is that there's all these kids who are regretting transitioning and stuff. And to be sure, there are detransition people who regret engaging with the system. But that is true for literally every medical procedure that we have in medicine, right? So there's a group of people who, if you get knee replacements, they regret getting a knee replacement. and that the 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 rates of regret for knee replacements are very are much higher than they are for transition mm-hmm. and for engaging in gender affirming care. So I think I, I agree with you that there is this like distributed perception, but I, I I guess that's part of the the thing I'm talking about is that there seems to be this like set of propaganda. Um, for political purposes, to spread things that are not based in peer-reviewed facts, but instead are mm-hmm. meant to scare you and, and make you oppose this mm-hmm. small group of people who really just want to have access to healthcare. But I'd love to hear your, your thoughts to that.
2: Yeah, I would challenge that a little bit. I mean, I it, just from the standpoint that what I see happening is that there is a truth to these, some of the stuff that we're talking about. So like, you know, maybe not the majority, but close to half of like a class, like identifying as gender diverse in some way that doesn't mean they're all doing medical interventions, you know, but, but that like the number of young people who are questioning their gender or changing their pronouns or changing their name, you know, I hear this over and over and over from the parents, from the kids, from the teachers, you know, you know, it's, so I, I think that, Things like that are a reality. I also think that there is a reality to clinics not always providing the best care, not ever intentionally. Like I want to be really clear about that. You know, I I think that clinics are doing the best they can um, given the limitations that they have in the, the with the resources and whatnot, as we're talking about, and there are some differing opinions about the approach to care. So, you know, it's just different, different ways of approaching it. So there, you know, we have to address that, I guess, but, um, but I think what then happens is that these realities, which yes, are not you know, we don't have research on yet or like the detransition literature is in its infancy. I mean, right. we're learning more and more every day about that. But I do agree that those are then used as scare tactics, right. I think. But I don't think that that. Yeah. So that's, you know, very unfortunate that, that you know, the right wing or whoever is doing that. But I don't think that that just because they're using it in that way means it's not happening. Right. right. You know, I, I think that's where we have to be kind of careful that, and I think that's what I see happening, uh, occurring among my colleagues sometimes is, you know, if it's a Fox News headline, people don't read the article. You know, I've started to read those articles some now, and I'm not I'm not a big Fox News person, but sometimes I read some of the the right wing, you know, media articles and. It's rings true for what I'm seeing, you know, and so I they paint paint it in a way as a scare tactic, which, yes, I, I don't agree with that doing that. But I also don't agree with the left doing that, which they do also, you know, with the suicidality right, stuff right. and whatever right. else. So, you know, but so how do we have these conversations in this fraught political period? Where no, you know, people won't even read the opposing side, if you want to call it that, because they'll immediately be assumed to be, you know, a Republican or a Democrat, if they, you know, even acknowledge that there may be another side to the story. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult. It's made the field, I think, kind of. You know, we're kind of at this like stalled moment in being able to move forward because we can't even have the conversations. People are terrified to speak up. My colleagues continue to be afraid to speak up or their hospitals won't let them speak up because the hospitals don't want to get the heat. And so the conversations are happening like in whispers, like among, you know, a few people here and a few people there, um, which is not going to ultimately, I think, help move things forward.
1: And you, you don't even have to go looking at, you know, various media outlets. I mean, I, I'm looking at a Gallup poll. This was from last year showing 20, just under 21 percent of Gen Z identifying as LGBT compared to 2 percent of baby boomers. So there 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 is there is something yep. happening. And then I think it's our job as critical thinkers to kind of figure out exactly like why those trends are happening in terms of this increased identification that Laura you're expressing you're seeing kind of anecdotally from parents and uh you know professionals you you also you know many brought up this you know trend in in terms of the polling in, in other countries and i know you went on a trip to europe this year and uh, it shared some thoughts with folks in other countries and I'm I'm curious if you can share a couple of other thoughts and insights from there. What what have you learned and and what do you think might inform practices here going forward?
2: Um, You know, it is very enlightening to talk with colleagues in other parts of the world and kind of see how other countries are handling the the same issues that we're faced with in the United States. And, you know, what I'm really learning is that more, There are more and more countries that are making the decision to slow things down, to it require research. If there's going to be medical interventions done with minors, there needs to also be a research protocol so we can actually be, be more closely following the outcomes and, you know, requiring a lot more in the way of mental health. And, you know, really focusing on the, the conference I went to, the focus was on the importance of offering the mental health services first as a first line of treatment. And because that does help with gender dysphoria, you know, having therapy can really be helpful. And some people come like their gender dysphoria resolves without any kind of medical intervention, you know, just through therapy. And that's not conversion therapy. you know so these are people who are experiencing right. dysphoria but really probably would not ne- wouldn't benefit from medical medically transitioning but they have to have time to figure that out and so therapy can kind of help them figure out what path is best for them and you know i think that what struck me the most in talking with colleagues in some of these other very progressive countries like finland and sweden and you know the uk and others they are very focused on the well-being of children. You know, they have that's a value in it with held strongly within their culture, cultures. And um, you know, so and they're not, there's not as much of a political force in some of those countries that's kind of dictating the conversation or making it so impossible to have these conversations. So my sense was that they are really able to step back and look at the research and like more critically think about what's happening and talk amongst themselves and you know, and just, you know, take a moment to try to reassess what the best plan forward is going to be. You know, I had a, a psychology mentor once a few years ago say to me in any other field of psychology or medicine, Laura, if there was this degree of exponential increase in a condition, <laughs> what would happen would be a halting of all like medical intervention to like figure out what is going on, like, what is causing this increase so drastically? And, you know, the question to me was, why is that not happening in your field? (laughs) And, you know, my response was, I don't know. Like, I I, honestly, I don't, I I think that, you know, probably people are afraid that it's going to harm people if we don't keep moving forward. So I don't know how to find that, that balance between, you know, stopping all care, which I said, you know, again, I'm not in favor of the bans. But I do think we have to somehow slow down enough to be able to really reflect on what's happening and how can we move forward, you know, following the WPATH standards of care as closely as possible so that we can feel more confident that, you know, the majority of young people going forward will benefit from this intervention. I think, you know, that's kind of where I fall with
0: that. Gotcha. Yeah, it's. I agree with you. We need stronger evidence to verify that what we're doing is helpful. It seems, I'm not sure how I feel about changing what we're doing now and and increasing gatekeeping the way that you're seeing in Norway, Sweden, Finland, UK, etc. At the same time that we're, as far as I know, and there hasn't been data out of these countries saying, here's the bunch of harms that have come out from the way we're doing things. Um, here are all these people who are now like, worse off because of the the methods we had before. I get the the idea that like we're not sure we're helping, but we're also not like there's I don't as far as I know there's not a strong signal that we're hurting. Yeah, it's it. And then you have a bunch of people mm-hmm. saying we still need care and we still want yeah. care. And so that's an interesting balancing act. But I know we're we're at two minutes till uh, your time that you had to go. And I'm just why don't you uh, anything else you want to wrap up on and then and we can let you go because uh, you're a busy scholar and, <laughs> and we really appreciate your time.
2: Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, you know, I could talk for days about this stuff, as I've told you. (laughs) And, you know, I, I love that point you just made, because I think that is what's so difficult, you know, is we don't we don't have research at this point that shows tremendous harm. Right. So, you know, I I understand the you know, desire. And I, I feel it myself, like to not completely stop care because I, I, I am positive that we are helping people, some people, like, I know that there are people being um, helped. I wouldn't be in this field if I didn't feel that way. Like I wouldn't have brought it to the United States and, you know, as part of the team and I wouldn't still be doing it if I didn't believe in it. And at the same time, I think, you know, it's because of how different the population has, you know, looks now versus then, you know, there are just so many factors that, have caused a lot of people, myself included, to be concerned, you know, that, you know, if we do continue to move forward as if everything's fine and we just wait a decade to see how many people are going to be harmed in that time, you know, and we're talking about children. (laughs) So I think that's another thing for me. I just have this like kind of, I guess, bias that I, I do care about children greatly. And, you know, I don't feel like they, you know, I, I feel strongly that they rely on us as adults to look look after their well-being and be the ones in the room to make these decisions about their health and their, you know, me- medical health, mental health. And so I think we have a responsibility to just, you know, be as thoughtful as we possibly can be about you know, what, what we're doing, whether it's slowing things down or not, you know, and so Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's a challenge. And I, you know, I just want to be really clear that I am, my whole goal is to help young people thrive, Mm -hmm. you know, in their lives and as they go move into adulthood and into their, you know, into their adult lives. And so I think by helping them through their childhood, whether it's with transitioning, you know, because they're trans and they're going to benefit medically or by helping them address their mental health issues so that they can thrive as the gender they were assigned at birth, or if it's helping them figure out that they're non-binary, you know, and they're going to be most comfortable somewhere in that area. You know, I mean um, in that identity, I think, you know, that's, that's my goal and to work with the parents so that the parents can support them through that process. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, Laura Edwards-Lieber, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today and for being patient with us and for continuing all the work that you're doing. It's so important, and we wish you all the success going forward.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This has been a great conversation.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on a bit more complicated. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a friendly rating and share with someone you know. If you have a reaction you'd like to share with us, please find us on Twitter at a bit more pod or send an email to more at gmail.com.